0: Good evening everyone. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. Welcome to the program. My special guest tonight is award-winning poet Melody G. Melody's new book of poetry is available now and is titled The Convert's Heart is Good to Eat from Driftwood Press. Hello Melody. How are you tonight? Melody? Well I guess what it looks like as if we're having some technical problems here. Melanie, can you hear me? Hello. Yes. <laughs> Hi, are Michael. I'm yes, All I'm right. here. Thank you. Thank you
1: so much for having me.
0: Great. I'm glad you're here. You know, with a program that's live, sometimes there are technical problems that start off the program, but once they're situated, we're situated. That makes me feel good. Okay, Okay.
1: I'm here. You're here.
0: (laughs) We're we're here. Great. We're here together for the next hour. Let's begin our poetic journey together. Melody, what is poetry? What is poetry?
1: Oh, that's such a big question. I know there are a lot of answers to it, but I think for myself, I would say that poetry is an expression, either verbal or written, that is, consciously trying to do something new with the language, either the way that the language sounds or the way that it looks on the page or the form that it takes or the line break that forces you to see a double meaning in a word. I think it can be as long or short and about anything at all, as long as it's trying to do something fresh and new with language. I'd say that's my definition of poetry.
0: Well, that's a beautiful definition. I really like that. Let's talk a little bit more about this expression of verbal or written form, which you began with initially. Tell me more about that, this expression. Yes, I think it can be an expression
1: of anything. I think poetry can just be an expression of emotion, or it can be a story. I feel like it can be an expression of just about anything in the human experience, and it can be brief, it can be epic, it, it, it's so wide, what can be poetry, but I think a key characteristic of it is that the speaker or the writer is trying to invent something with the language is trying to show you something new. And, you know, all the, all the poems that I love, they're about pretty mm. simple things. They're about love, family, death. They're about things that we all go through, but they feel new to me because the writer is trying to do something with those words, something totally new and original with those words.
0: Oh, very nice. I like the way you think. Please share a poem. Sure, I'd love to. This is the first poem
1: in my chapbook, The Convert's Heart is Good to Eat. This is a poem called The Convert Learns to Play Hide and Seek. And my chapbook has a series of poems uh, that I call the convert poems. They're poems about me, but the convert is kind of a character and not me. And it gives me an interesting distance and it lets me write the story in a different way. So this one is about my grandfather's restaurant. He ran a Chinese takeout restaurant in Southern California. And I was not a convert when I was a child. I converted when I was an adult, but I'm trying Mm -hmm. to piece together different parts of my life that touch on or led to, or were changed because of conversion. The convert's heart, the convert learns to play hide and seek. The convert hid within her grandfather's restaurant while her cousin hunted, while their mothers fried in oil and sweet and sour. When the convert's parents laid eyes on her, they said, daughter, daughter. They never played this game with her because from daughter, there is no hiding. When the Lord walked in the garden, calling the pair from the trees, a game began. Now the convert strains to find him, fingering her ripped places, stalking him out of his relentless camouflage. The theologian says, there is no faith without separation. A ship will sink under its own lighthouse. Now the convert's daughter is hiding from her. The girl knows being found is the part you wait for, but is not the best part. Tucked between the restaurant's lard buckets, The convert heard the boy flushing the usual traps and dark passages. She entered a country where she thought she could live. The writer says, waiting is etymologically related to vigor, to vigilance. The convert seeks with bellows and stomps. Her daughter's laugh reveals her place every time. Who can keep from saying, I am?
0: That's the end of the poem. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, I like to allow a poem to just settle in, settle in my system for a second before Mm -hmm. we move on to the next question. I think that is so important to listen to it, whether you're listening to it or reading it to allow it to settle in. I call it just to marinate. And that's Mm -hmm. what I'm doing at this particular moment. Mm -hmm. I want to go back for a second, though. Let's go back to your book, the title of your book. The Convert's Heart is Good to Eat. Now, that's... An unusual title to me. Tell me about it. Sure.
1: Sure. It's the conversion story that inspired the book. The Convert's Heart is Good to Eat is the title of one of the poems. It's the second to last poem in the book. Mm. And the book Mm. is about my conversion story. It's also about motherhood and my two daughters. And like conversion, becoming a parent changed my life. It changed everything about my body and what I knew about love. And so I picked this title, I picked this poem to be the title poem because it was about my daughters, and it was about conversion and it was about the body. It just seemed to hold a lot of the different themes that I was trying to put into the chapbook. Um, and I would be happy to read it for you at any time. Well, please share it now. I think it's a perfect time. Sure. The Convert's Heart is Good to Eat. The girl and her mother are seekers of water. They catch drips from a broken aloe sword. A wide cactus mitt oozes clear medicine. Tendril roots purify along blind channels hurtling toward blossom, toward the bright ovary picked for its blush. What happens inside a body happens in darkness. Nothing to guide the cells churning and dying or tug blood on its course. Nothing but scribbled echoes to expose an unborn face within the call. The convert's heart is a fruit cased in rind. Is it the kind with a ragged stone in its throat or with seeds woven in each wedge of flesh? Is it the kind webbed with bitter pith and oil? The convert's heart hangs low for gathering and open to the animal bargain of sugar. The daughter sees the heart, ever on display and swollen with light, ever thirst and appetite ripened to sweetest grief.
0: And that's the end of that poem. Wow. The convert's heart. Melody, what was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Mm.
1: I think in middle school, I was in a bookstore, and I discovered the poet E.E. Cummings. And if you know his work, you know that it is really Mm -hmm. wild on the page and in sound, and he messes with capital letters and he messes. And punctuation, and he turns words inside out, and he changes their meanings, and he's just extreme with how far he's pushing language and expression. And he was the first poet I really discovered, um, maybe mm-hmm. fifth fifth grade, and it was mm-hmm. it it just gave me permission to do all of it with language. I wasn't trying to write in form at the time. I wasn't trying to write in stanzas. The first thing I discovered about poetry was this wildness of E.E. Cummings. I think that was really formative for me to have uh, this writer say to me from his book, um, you can do whatever you want as long as it's moving, as long as it's beautiful, as long as it's strange and inventive, And I since tamed that and learned to write in stanzas, and I think form is really important, and I love the craft and the shape of Mm -hmm. a poem. But starting with that endless possibility, I think, was an early, really formative experience for me.
0: (laughs) Wow. I mean, that was a wonderful answer. <laughs> well, Melody, <laughs> I already enjoy talking with you because you're a wealth of knowledge. Wow. Wow. Well, let <laughs> me ask you. this question. <laughs> sure. All right. Sure. How does a poem begin for you with an hmm. idea, a form, or an
1: image? Oh, I love the question. I think it can be any of those three. I think for me, I think my... I know a poem is beginning and needs to be paid attention to if it has a strong emotion and Mm -hmm. if it has a good image and if it has something fresh and new in the language. I think if I have a feeling but no image or language to go with it, it's not ready to be a poem. And I think if I have Um, some new strange or interesting expression, but there's no feeling behind it. I don't think it's Mm -hmm. ready yet. I think I know from experience now to pay attention when I have all three of those things, when I can say there's a really serious, deep, important feeling, and there's Mm -hmm. something for someone to look at. There's something interesting, a visual for them to see in it. And I can say it in a new way, and that it's fresh. And then that's just the beginning. Then I have to figure out what the rest of it is. I have to write it out and make sure that there's a story and there's a place and that the reader is grounded in something. There's something I want to share. I think something I've learned from writing prose too, much more recently, is that Mm -hmm. a beginning, a middle, and an end is really important, that I want to uh, start a reader somewhere and take them to another place and bring them somewhere else eventually. Um so I that that I think those three things I think tell me. Pay attention. I think a poem is starting and then your work begins from there.
0: Oh, very nice. Please share a poem.
1: Sure. So the second poem in the book is also about the restaurant, my family's restaurant. It's about the women who worked there and the liturgy that I started to see once I underwent the conversion process, I started to look back and see lots of different kinds of liturgy in my life, rituals, things that I participated in, things that brought me into a community. And this, is, uh, this poem is called Liturgy, and it's about the liturgy of these women, my aunt and my mother, cooking in our restaurant. Liturgy. Even celery slices and chicken cubes for the sake of even cooking time. The bias cut looks elegant and sautés faster. The quarter steer is readied for carryout. Filet until thumb-sized. A guest must cut nothing for herself. Measure oil in ladles, salt in palms. A slide of sugar tames the bitter. Only balance will sate. If you crave, the meal was lopsided. The eye and hand flavor precisely, but into the cartons dishes must overflow. Fill rice over the lip. A strained seal says, see how much was poured out for you. Three chunks of pineapple and a scattering of sesame seeds is all the gloss a sweet and sour pork carton will need. The meat is fried twice after closing in lard rendered from silk to blistering. Near dawn, My mother peels back thin socks altered to armbands, weeding her burns of polyester threads. Your dish is scooped from seven different buckets of evenly diced and coated parts. You watch the muscle memory of women with ossified tongues and unbound feet. Their noontime chant, fill, fill, fill. The door opens and a bell calls out hunger at vespers at holy hour. Decades of automation lift the hands that offer you and receive you. And that's the end of that poem.
0: Wow. You know, I listen for the poem's diction. And I listen to find words that seem especially well written. One of the words that stuck out to me was aphide. Talk about Mm. aphide. Why did you use that word? Yes. Sure. So...
1: I think about my mother's language a lot. My mother is an immigrant from China, and she came to the United States when she was 18. She left China for Hong Kong when she was just 12, and then she stayed in Hong Kong for seven years, waiting for her visa to come through. And then she came to the United States when she was 18. And so learning English was like it is for so many immigrants. It was a huge challenge for her. She wasn't able to go to school full-time. She was working. And so there's a linguistic term of um, when a person kind of hits their limit, when they can't digest anymore, where they can't push past certain mistakes that they're making with grammar Mm -hmm. or with vocabulary. Um, And I use the term, the term isn't ossified, but ossified, you know, to turn something to bone, for something to grow hardened. Um, Yes it just captures that for me that it grew hard and it grew mm. unmovable after a while. And part of my relationship with my mom is a language barrier. English is my mother tongue and it is not her mm. mother tongue. And there is something mm. hardened and we just have to bridge that barrier with each other when we talk to each other. Um, and so that's why I, that's why I chose, that word there that, you know, there, but there's also something very bodily and there's something organic about that hardness, too. Um, it's a hardness yes. that I think immigrants have to develop in their resilience in, you know, yes. all of the ways that they struggle financially and with their sense of safety and their sense of welcome mm-hmm. and their outsiderness. Um, there's a hardness that happens to you there as well. Um, and underneath that, there's a lot of tenderness that's still there.
0: Mm. You know, I listen to voices as well, and you speak with conviction, and there's an mm-hmm. eloquence to the way that you share words. What's the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice?
1: Oh, well, first, thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. Um, it was very kind to say You know, I think I would say that I have for a long time prioritized my written voice. You know, I I grew Mm. up with computers. I write on my screen. I type more than I handwrite, more than I write long form. I kind of do prefer and prioritize. And I think visually, I just maybe I'm just a visual person. And the way that I came up writing was very on the screen for me and on the page for me. So I think first in what the words will look like. How long are the lines? How thick are the stanzas? Um, but I've come more and more to appreciate listening to poems and performing my poems as well. I resisted it for a long time. I had a teacher in graduate school who insisted mm-hmm. that we memorize that we memorize our poems and that we perform them, and that we memorize other <sighs> people's poems and perform them too. Oh, and I resisted it so bad at the time. I was just not comfortable performing words. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've grown to appreciate being forced to do that early on and being forced to inhabit that. Part of it, I think, is just a, a disconnect between the body and the mind. I think, I, I think we're just a culture that separates the mind and the body. And we, we prioritize mm-hmm. everything that's above the neck as in charge and as more important. And we just hope that our bodies can carry our brains around for long enough for us to get our work done. Um, I think I'm coming around to how important embodying words is and speaking to each other, certainly, and hearing each other. I I read to my girls, and they love to read to Mm. me. And, you know, since – since having them, that's, that's definitely become really important. I can see how much it matters that they hear my voice and that they hear words in addition to reading them. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the connection is. Maybe the connection for me is just growing. The connection is becoming clearer for me after a long time mm-hmm. of feeling divided between the written yes. word and the spoken word.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. I like that answer. That was perfect. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> sure. You pack, a, you pack a punch when you speak. You really do. <laughs> you know, you spoke about E.E. Cummings earlier. Mm-hmm. And all great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of the other influences that you, that you love? Sure. Well, I'm looking at my
1: bookshelf right now. Um, I'm looking at the writers whose work I just collect and I can't get enough of an early one was uh, Louise Glick. She was definitely someone who taught me about how delicate language can be and how Mm -hmm. uh, she taught me about how sublime the domestic could be and how you could write about your home and your, your partner and the flowers on your table. She, she is, she's really influenced me and, what I have permission to write about, what's worthy of being written about, for sure. Um, the poet Lee Young Lee has been really influential on me. I think, uh, I think from him, I learned not to be afraid of intimacy in writing. He, his mm-hmm. writing, kind of draws you in. It pulls you really close, and it whispers to you, like it's sitting next to you and has all these intimate things to say to you. And he writes about intimate topics and he writes about love and lovers. And he has really been an education for me in not being afraid to bring your reader close to you and say things that are private and say things that may have been a secret. As long as you're making them beautiful and accessible to really feel free to be close to your reader. Um, those have been maybe the three biggest writing influences in my life. They've been the biggest teachers in my life, right. the writers that I've learned from.
0: Now, if you could pick a poet to serve as your mentor, who would it be?
1: Oh. Oh, I don't, don't know. You know, I, I've been to the Kundiman Poetry and the Kundiman Asian American Writers retreat. It's this incredible Mm -hmm. organization that hosts an annual retreat every summer. And this organization highlights and promotes and supports and nurtures Asian American writers. Um, Yes. And I've taken some incredible workshops there with some writers. And I I think those would be, I mean, Amy Nezekumatatil, Sean Wong at my last uh, fiction retreat. Um, I took a class with Tom Lin. So like the classes that I took, the workshops that I took, they were so intensive. They were so intimate. They were so communal. Um, Mm -hmm. I've learned and I've changed so much because of those, those spaces. Um, I think those would be everybody at Kundiman is kind of my mentor.
0: All right. Very nice. You know, I asked earlier, about an early experience where you learned a poetic language and power. Let's broaden it just a little bit. Do you come from a literary background? And what did you learn about writing growing up?
1: Mm, I I didn't. I feel like I decided to become a writer early on, but I'm I I don't know where it came from. It I think part of it came from I grew up in a very quiet home where there wasn't a Mm -hmm. lot of language. There wasn't a lot of talking and I read and I wrote kind of to see a reflection of myself, to see myself somewhere, to see a mirror of myself. And I read to, to escape and to be in a different place and to experience different things. Um, I think I just decided that this is what I was Mm going to do. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I, I thought of myself as a writer when I was young, mm. even when nobody else did. I, and I, believe me, <laughs> I tried. I tried out for contests. I tried out to be the editor of our newsletter. And it just wasn't <laughs> something that landed with the people around mm-hmm. me. There were other, there were always other kids in my class mm-hmm. who got identified as the good writers. And I was like, why isn't yes. it me? I love it. <laughs> and I just, I held, I held onto it pretty stubbornly um, mm-hmm. and I think I just stuck to it and got better at it. I mean, when people told me like, you're really not that good at dance or, or drama or sports, I was like, okay, I, I can take that. That's fine. And I can stand down, but I would not let go of wanting to write and wanting to become a writer. Um, it, I think it's just, it's just a vocation that I have, mm-hmm. and I've, I'm I'm glad that I've I stuck with it. Um, it gave me a lot of resilience for the rejections that are pretty typical in the writing and publishing yes. life. You know, rejections from mm-hmm. journals or presses or MFA programs um, mm-hmm. that are that are pretty standard. They're they're disappointing and they can be heartbreaking, but I think I learned to work through that from the early
0: tenacity. I think. Oh, very nice. I think I would like to hear four poems from you. Oh, I've never asked anybody to do that before, but for some reason, I want to hear four poems from you. (laughs) I will give you
1: four poems. I will give (laughs) you um, four different convert poems. Um, They're kind of spread out through the book, Mm -hmm. and I've never read them back-to-back like this, but I, I love this invitation, and I will do it. Thank you. This first of the four is called The Convert Desires Her Way Into a First Prayer. It's another poem that writes about my conversion experience, but also dips back into the past and is looking to childhood for clues about conversion. Where did this come from? And sort of revising past experiences with this new conversion experience. Um, the convert desires her way into a first prayer. Her mother's first lesson was chew your wants and spit the pulp. Grow skinny, feeding everyone else your flesh. A heart's cargo is sometimes oil, sometimes crude. A spill can undo the waterproof of any surface. And still, the diving birds must feed, must point their beaks past the slick that seals the cornea to eternal blur. Does the Lord ask her what she wants when he already knows its name? Does he play these games to make her ignorant tongue collapse? A spill will always take a shape, a floating map of damage. In the cleanup, particles separate from the main and cast out into fish bellies and clam adductors. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Her cargo is not contaminant. Her answers, clear water. Let me oil. Let me wash. Let me want with a full throat, even of hopeless warbling. Let you do nothing about any of it. Let each desire form in this mouth whose teeth you have taken from me. That's the end of that one, and I'll jump into Mm -hmm. the next one. Um so this next one jumps from the present which is something that's called a catechumen ceremony when you become a catholic one of the things that you go through is a ceremony where you you just kind of progress in your in your movement your journey towards receiving your sacraments um and it was a really beautiful ceremony that I did in my parish um with my husband as my sponsor So it jumps from Mm -hmm. that ceremony back into the past, into an Easter egg hunt that I was in when I was a little girl. Um, So you'll you'll kind of hear the jumps. The convert receives the sign of the cross on her feet. The immigrant's daughter doesn't know Easter or egg hunts. Someone cuts a starting line ribbon to unleash the gatherers, and she is washed into the herd. She knows she is supposed to seek. No one has told her these eggs will not be the raw white ones, her dutiful mother tucked by the long beans. She doesn't know to spot silver wrappings or shiny plastics. She is turned around, lapping a brick path with her basket, some centerpiece with dented floral foam still packed in the bottom. She doesn't notice others yanking at grasses or parting bushes like curtains. Her mother has taught her never to take. To initiate her into the mystery, the convert receives the sign of the cross on her eyes, her ears, her lips, her shoulders, her hands, her heart. She replies, I am, to every question. Then her husband kneels and thumbs a cross on each foot. She cannot remember the priest Words for why, but hears him call her catechumen. Her feet, barely sandaled, receive their signs on skin and bones. The hunt stretches on, and she knows much lies beyond her, scattered and hidden, but also nowhere. In the exit line, a smiling host puts, th- puts three bright eggs into her empty basket, her shoulder. Aisles pulse at communion. The convert watches them open their hands and mouths, how they vanish the wine together. She wonders if the sip stains the wafer before it melts, if that steep is enough to change the body's contours as it eases down to fill the fast. And that's the end of that one. So I'll do two more convert poems. The next one is called The Convert Wounds, Not scars. The wound on her lip goes white before turning red. The virus erupts the lines between chin and lip, between lip and philtrum, a sore across two continents of skin, a bridge of lava. She will feel healed when the flesh color returns. The variation is the aberration. Blood courses to deliver a clot. Vessels bouquet under the scalp or in the womb in places where we heal fastest. Over the wound, cells scramble a lean-to scab, a mortar of new skin. The body wants to draw its seams together. But Jesus hangs before the convert, eternally wounded, eternally weeping from his gashes. How to open hers without nails or thorns? How to measure heartbeats without seeing blood heave out its rhythms. A gush flows under pressure, even as the pulse goes on. Our lesions take air, our infections seek sunlight. How to resist our unwilled mechanisms to staunch. We push through the same tear in the world and leave it sore. When we come, we come open, pick a wound, slow to bleed and slower to seal. We cream the scar to fade our atlas of living. What itched its way to a silver road? What shadow constellation of pox? The convert counts Jesus's wounds. If you count both hands and both feet, all lashes and piercings and the forsaken cry, the number is higher and lower than anyone's. At mm. the end of that poem. Um, And I think I will do a poem that's about my receiving the sacraments. In the Catholic Church, adults receive baptism, first communion, and confirmation all at the same time. And so the sacraments are really coming at you all at once. And this is about that experience for me. The convert receives the sacraments with flowing water. What fills the font is not drawn from river, whose deltas are gnarled silt knuckles clenched against salt laps. Farther back from deltas, humans wash and flake and piss and baptize, water distressed and returned, gritted and grimed. For her sacraments, indoors and unwild, water must flow by priest's application, locust and honey for luncheon. The convert's first shard of full moon altar bread refuses the solution. The first dark sip fumes her throat and ignites below. Chrism gleams her pores to reflecting pools. A glint of light always thinks it is God. Even slick parking lot runoff, even gutter stream, and blessed gems of balsam and olive oil cry miracle. Still water knows, gravity gathers knows how floodplain and watershed will always receive. In a river, a fire with fish, or a font that catches what hands pour, the world ripples and then it stills, all flesh and fowl and hunger. And that's the end of that one. I think that was four for you.
0: Yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> your poetry, for whatever reason, reminds me of Ice caps on the top of mountains, mm. crisp, clear, straight to the point, beautiful—all those things. But it also have an edge that you need to be careful. You need to be careful. I don't know where that's coming from, but you mm. need to be careful. I don't know. Thank Maybe you. That's of the nicest thing. Of life.
1: Oh, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Thank you.
0: Really? Uh, I'm surprised by I, I <laughs> that. Was that was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, let me ask this question before we take a quick break. Sure. Do yeah. you think you were meant to be a poet?
1: Oh, I don't know. I think I was meant maybe a writer. I think okay. I started wanting to write stories because stories are what I saw. They're what I saw mm-hmm. at school and they're what I saw. I didn't, I didn't, figure out poetry or get exposed to E.E. Cummings until I was almost in middle school. Um, All right. I think I wanted wanted to write stories first, fiction, Mm -hmm. novel, like the books that were on the library shelves. I thought that's what I want to do. And then poetry Mm -hmm. came along and I got exposed to it. And I think I turned to it. Um, All right. I think – yeah, the freedom, the expression of it, the the fact that it could be about anything in any length. I think mm-hmm. I really
0: was drawn to that. Mm-hmm. Well, what surprises you most about being a poet or a writer? What surprises you most?
1: Mm-hmm. I think what writing teaches me. I think I know what I want to say. I think I have a mm-hmm. story to tell or a poem to write, and it's going to say – what I intend, and then it gets on the page and it does its own thing. It walks around and it has a life and it has a meaning and other people read it and they find different meanings in it. They say, this is what I see and it's nothing I ever intended. And it's so much smarter than what I ever intended, what they're saying about <laughs> the writing. Um, that that surprises me in wonderful, wonderful ways, How the, how a piece of writing can, be alive on its own and do things that you never thought that it was going to do um, and kind of talk back to you and then teach you something oh. about yourself. That's, that's, that's wonderfully surprising to me.
0: Wow. Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Anthony Ingram I'm here with melody G fascinating conversation I was intrigued when we started I'm intrigued now melody question for you sure so much is happening in the world so much Mm. is happening things are happening every single day it seems like every single hour and sometimes every single minute something is happening What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? Mm, That's
1: a big question too. I think Mm -hmm. for me, I turn to poetry to feel less alone in the world. I turn to it to see a mirror back to myself and to see something that I didn't know before, to see someone else's story. I think poetry, like art, like all art, it makes us more compassionate because it shows us someone else's insides. Some A, mm. a painting or a beautiful piece of writing shows you what, what was going on inside someone else, and that can't help but make you more compassionate, more empathetic, more educated. Um, just it, it just broadens you, and it pushes you, and it challenges you to be outside of yourself and to see, Mm -hmm. to really see others. So, I mean, if that's the role, that's, that's, I think that's a pretty noble role for anybody. Um, I hope that's what poetry does for people in these very dark and difficult times when we feel unsafe, when we feel Mm -hmm. like our government's not speaking for us or when we feel like things are falling apart and there's no one in charge, um, I think we turn to art and we turn to poems to feel like someone else with a beating heart on the page wants to connect with us. And I think that fortifies us to go do those hard things, to go back out into the world. I don't think poetry is a retreat from the real world. We don't just curl Mm -hmm. up and read books and then put the books away. I hope that they make us feel closer to other people or closer to causes or close to pain and suffering that makes us want to go out there and encounter other people in, in whatever way feels productive for us. I, I hope that's the role of poetry, especially well, today.
0: I just hope you're teaching somewhere or leading workshops because you're top notch. I enjoy <laughs> listening to you share. Your well, thank you, Mike. You make it poetry. you make it so easy. <laughs> well, you make
1: it so easy. I
0: really well, thank you, but I really, really do. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. I think you may have mentioned the word "life" a little bit earlier. Mm. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? Mm. Editing. Tell me. Editing. Tell me your questioning.
1: My my take on editing your poetry after it's yes. been published? Well
0: before it's been published. Because again they view it as being something that's living, that's breathing, and mm. sometimes they want to change it and sometimes they don't want to change it, sometimes they don't know what to do. You know, so what is your mm. take on editing? How how often do you edit or do you edit meticulously or you just leave it and let it be whatever it is?
1: Ah. I edit very meticulously up until it's published somewhere, hopefully. I think after after it's printed, I think after a journal or a press has taken it up, has taken a risk on you and committed to you to put it out under their name and alongside their other authors to say, this is work that we love and we're gonna put out for you. I think it stays for me at that point. there are po- poems that appeared in journals that then later made it into the book, and then right. then I think I felt free to edit to say I'm I'm changing these. They're they're going to appear somewhere different. You give credit to the presses and to where mm-hmm. they first appeared, but it's often several years after a poem comes out in a journal that it goes into a book for publication. And I've changed as a writer. The poems around this poem that I want to put in the book make it different. It's in conversation with other poems, new poems, depending on where it sits in the book. It's, it's going to speak differently. And so I feel free to edit at that point. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I think I want to be committed to the poem being published as it was published. And I got it to the place where I thought it was the best work that I could do. And Mm -hmm. it's a record. It's a record of where I was as a writer at that time and what I was saying and what I believed and what I was able to say. And I want to keep that record. I want to be authentic and committed to that record. Um, So I I don't edit them after they've been published. I I won't edit any of the poems that appear in my books. Um, You know, those presses took a chance on me. And mm-hmm. I, I, I feel obliged to say that was the work I believed in it. I, I feel like if I went back and edited them, I would be saying something about how I felt or what I believed in the work to begin with. Um, and I don't want to say that. I, I think that they're, I think that they're set. They're solid. They were born. They're they're walking around. They're like people yes. now. I can't I can't redo them. Please share a Sure. I'm going to share. Uh, some poems from my previous book. It's called The Dead in Daylight, and it came out with Cooper Dillon Books in 2016. I started writing about pregnancy and childbirth and motherhood in in this book, and I continued to do that in The Convert's Heart is Good to Eat. But this is kind of the first place where I started writing about those themes. So this is a poem in nine parts. Ten parts. It's a poem in ten parts. Um, About my daughter being born. It's called Go Back, Make Ready. One. My girl is born and then I follow outside myself. A latch slides and clicks into place in the gray squall and spray. When I was born, I emptied a mother out and went to live in my body. She shuffled her vacant room Back down to size. Two. The mother who received me long called herself empty. She filled me with soup and meat. Filled herself with who I was supposed to be. Three. Another girl. And we are four. She, too, cut from the opening, sharp but not straight. The same one closed two years before. We know only two things. Damage and repair. Four. In this birthlight, all I can remember is I was born, and now I am open. I am the sum of some breaths. Five. The doctor pinches my skin in place, traces the tight tissue crater above reattached passages. Feeling may never return, never certain about sliced nerves. My dark ravine remembers the stitches beneath on each organ and sac cut to make her a corridor. 6. Repair is from is made from go back and make ready. Go back to her fluid room, go back to a wedding day, to the sign that no one will make a home inside her, go back to the fall of a whole life out with its own cord and cry, go back to first desires and make ready. 7. Her little gleaming body has never harmed anything, yet I am a throbbing tear, a swollen scar, an evacuated ballroom. She has not done this to me. And yet, what did? How dry the skin over hot milk. How small the layer between liquid and air. The nursling grows tender on her bones. Nine, my mother has never had a surgery or sonogram. My mother's body is soft with more corners than walls. She fixes clothes for size. And signs of wear. The garment dragging behind me betrays a fray in every scene. Ten. The mittens muffle her sharp newborn reflexes. Diaphragm spasms her sleep with laughter. A current spikes her arms to surrender. Her tongue lashes the air. But no tears fall. Just an alarm. Then mewling gulps to say repair has begun. And that's the end of that one.
0: Oh wow. I don't know what to say. I will ask this question. And sure, I'm, I'm sure you've answered it probably somewhere else. You probably answered yeah. it already tonight like after it's been blown away by your by your work. Is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? Oh
1: Um, that's a really good question. I hope it's the, I hope it's the first, I hope it's letting your guard down. I hope that what you can connect with in a poem is someone's vulnerability, which means no walls, all walls are down. That you can go somewhere and say something that is private and make it universal. That in telling your story Someone else can see their story in it because you were particular, because you were honest, because you were vulnerable and said something that might be triggering shame or guilt or something hard. I think a poem has to be something hard. It has to ask something of you. It has to challenge you. If it were easy, I don't think it would land with someone. I think it has to come from a place that... You have to work to let go of or put out into the world. So mm-hmm. to answer your question, I think – I don't think I want to read or write poems that put up walls. I think poems right. are, are supposed to connect us, and we have to be vulnerable. To Like we have to show mm-hmm. our soft bellies in order to, for someone mm-hmm. to come near.
0: I agree 100%. You've written three books now. Am mm-hmm. I correct? So in terms of your books, do you want each book to stand on its own, or are you attempting to build a body of work with connections between each book?
1: Mm, I think it's the first. I think they're they're each about six or seven years apart, if I think of them as as little individuals. I was a different person in 2010 when my first book came out. I wasn't a parent Mm -hmm. yet.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: and I was writing my way into writing my own story. The poems in my first book, which is called Each Crumbling House, and it came out with Perugia Press in 2010. The poems there are very much my mother's stories, my father's stories, my grandparents' stories. They were the story of immigration and cultural assimilation and language. A lot of these poems take place in China, and mm-hmm. use ch- Chinese words, and are are looking back. And I feel like I had to do that in order to be able to continue to write, and then write about myself. The dead and daylight right. was poems about me and myself mm-hmm. as a mother. And the poems in the convert's heart is good to eat are are about me as well. And so they're they're different. They're standalone. I think Mm -hmm. I keep writing about the same topics. I think we all just, we have a topic or we have something that haunts us, and we just keep writing that. And motherhood and daughterhood are definitely haunting themes for me. I don't think I'll ever not write about them as much as I write about conversion and I'm starting to write about this new turn in my life. um, Mm -hmm. Those things will, will never go, they'll never not be important to me. So I think the, the three books are in conversation with each other. I think there right. there's definitely a line and evolution that you can see from one to the next to the next, but they're they're very much their own things, they're, their own little
0: lives, if you will. All right. You know, as you think about your poetry, the, the your, your work, your entire work, has a poem that you've written ever humbled or frightened you? Yes.
1: Yes. I think in this
0: sense <laughs> right. Yeah. Talk to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> talk to me. I will. I'll talk
1: to you about the poems that frighten me. The ones that um the ones that are about things that I'm scared to talk about privately or publicly. Um I think it took a lot of time for me to work up to writing about being an adoptee and writing about mm-hmm. having an adoptive mother and a birth mother and the tension between those two about being a daughter and not a daughter at the same time, about having this shadow life that I think lots of adoptees feel like they have the what if life, the other life that could have been, that wasn't. Um, And so whenever I write about those things, whenever I write about adoption and childbirth and my mother's, those poems absolutely frighten me. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Yes, um I those are very those are very tender topics, not just for me, but for other people. Um, uh-huh. but I, I I feel I at the same time I feel most proud of those poems too, because I think they took a risk. I was taking a risk with them and I think I was trying to be honest with them about my experience and I think when we try to be vulnerable and we we at least put it out there, um, it's a good thing, even if it's risky.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> oh, please share a poem. <laughs> I don't I'm know what sure.
1: to say. Please share a yeah. poem. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'll share one. I'll, um, oh, oh, oh i enjoy you so much. Please share a poem. <laughs> yes, I will. I will.
1: I'll share one that is kind of about adoption as well, about being adopted and about two mothers. Um, This is from my second book. This one is called Hear Her Say Everything. Begin with the mother, the second mother. Both she and the first asked for another life. Begin your new home against memory, your home as long as you carry nothing, except you look exactly like her. Begin to understand what mother means. Begin feeding the new mother as soon as you meet. A daughter is sustenance, but not food. She is ration. Hungrier than anyone is the mother full of alarm, the mother braced for loss, and the other unbracing. Begin your first feeding. Begin to fill your always asking bird mouth. What is it you want with so much? Begin to feed your own girls when they say hungry. Even when you know they mean some other kind. Begin the question unanswered because never asked. Begin the ocean string and beat. Begin the throat shiver of music. Begin as if words say. Begin to know that she is afraid of you. Her powerlessness empties her eyes as fast as your careless temptations of bad luck. Faster than your fast English talk you know she cannot catch. You, the abandoned, shadow her with abandonment. And again, the dream of stitching the cord back. Begin as if you could name all she had missed. Begin the longest night with the question, what do you want from me? Begin to hear her answer. Begin to hear her say everything, that she wants everything. She stands on shore looking at your foreign land begin to repair a lighthouse for her to signal impulses in darkness. And that's the end of that poem.
0: Wow. Let's take a brief break. I need a break. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. We are back. I'm here with Melody G. It's been an amazing time for me to listen to her share about her work. Melody. Yes, it's been wonderful for me too, Michael. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'd like you, we've almost reached the end of our poetic journey together, Mm -hmm. but I'd like you to share one more poem from The Convert's Heart is Good to Eat. One more poem for that book.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I will share this one I've only read once before. It's, it's one of those poems that lives on the page for me. It's not an out loud poem. And so I, I especially want to read this one so that it starts to live in my voice. Um, mm. Because it, the poem is a series of questions. Um, The poem's title is Questions for an Immigrant's Child, and I think you'll hear what this litany of questions is and whose voice. It's supposed to be in the immigrant mother's voice, Um, and they're questions that I hear and questions that someone else asks. So, questions for an immigrant's child. What does this mean? How do you say this? But what does it mean? How can you go? What do you owe for this life? How do you write this? How do you have so much? How has it not made you less selfish? How do you talk to us like that? Do I say it this way? How does a map work? How do I tell time? How come you don't taste as you cook? How do you know anything is good? How come you go Do you like to make me worry? Why not wait? How do you say what you think all the time? All these words, how come you don't call? What number is this? How many in a pound? Why are these so expensive? Why do you have to talk so fast? You hear me? You listening? What else could I do?
0: That's the end of that one. What advice would you give readers of A Congress Heart is Good to Eat? What would you tell them? Mm.
1: I think maybe I would say as a a way of introducing the book that Mm -hmm. conversion here is a tension, that it's a tension between grief and hope. It is not, it is not a, an entirely wonderful, joyous thing. I think we have this idea in our culture that religious conversion mm-hmm. is a certain way, that it's joyous, that it's happy, that it's good, that it's you saying goodbye to everything that you had known before, that you are reborn, and that you're a totally new person. That was very much not my experience with conversion. I felt called and I felt pulled toward a new faith life, but I felt a lot of grief and anguish about it too. It felt like I didn't, I loved my life. I had a really good Mm -hmm. life before conversion. I still do. And it Mm -hmm. felt like I was being asked to say yes to one thing and no to another. And I had mm-hmm. to revisit a lot of parts of my past that led to conversion. I was searching for clues to say, why am I doing this? Why this? Why now? Why am I being called to this whole other thing when I like what I have? Um, it's wonderful. I guess I guess will tell readers that conversion is, it is grief and it's hope. It's, it's wonderful and it's sad and it's it's mm. all those all of those things too and that's what i hope the stories in the books convey and the and the poems that are not convert poems that are about bodies and motherhood and nature and transformation and metamorphosis that they're all trying to speak
0: to that tension too oh wow very nice where can readers find your work
1: you can find <laughs> it on my website, <laughs> MelodyG.com. You can find my books at Driftwood Press, Cooper Dillon Books, and Perugia Press. Um, all wonderful, independent, dedicated editors um, who put poetry out for the deep love that they have for poetry. They've all been an incredible joy to work with. I've never felt so loved and supported. Um, than to have these Really, these editors are midwives to these books. They're bringing Mm -hmm. these books out into the world with me and for me. Um, So please find them there um, and support these, these wonderful presses.
0: All right. How can readers stay in touch, Melody?
1: You can go to my website. You can send me a message. Um, I'm easy to find if you just Google Melody G, and there's a contact form. I love talking to people. I lo- if you <laughs> reach out to me, I will ask you to coffee and I will ask you to lunch. Um, <laughs> I will ask to meet up with you. Um, one of the one of the thrills of of having these books has been the opportunity to talk to people and to do readings and hear from folks um, who are also writers and to hear their stories. Um, So, yes, please contact me from from my website. That would be wonderful.
0: All right. Finally, what's next for you? Where do you go from here? What's next Mm. for
1: the So I'm working on prose now. I'm writing in full sentences now. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm working on a collection of essays. It's a, a memoir in essays. And it's the story of conversion and cultural assimilation and immigration and language acquisition it's It's all of those things, and I think I'm writing in prose now because it's just the way that I need to tell this story now um, i so I've turned to writing. This full-length book. I hope that's my next project. Um, I'm going to be working on it at least for the rest of this year, if not longer. So um, I'm publishing essays and writing essays and putting essays into a collection um, and enjoying learning about creative nonfiction Mm -hmm. very, very much. I, I love being a student of this form and reading essays and, and memoirs. Um, so that's, that's what's next. I can't say when, but that's what I'm working on now. <laughs> well,
0: you know, you are extremely impressive. Oh, thank you, Michael. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just true. Um, I really don't want our conversation to end. I, I really, I, to me, it's been a magical time listening to you share about the art and craft of poetry, as well as share your incredible work. I wish you you. nothing but the best, the best that life has to offer.
1: Thank you so much. I I appreciate that. Thank you for making the space for me, for being so welcoming and making it so easy to talk about my work and share my work. It's been a
0: wonderful experience. It's been magical for me, too. I I like hearing that. It puts a smile on my face. Well, all right. (laughs) On that note, I'm going to say goodbye to you, Melody. I'm going to say goodnight to our listening audience. And as I share every episode, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Take care, everybody. Until next time. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.